Good morning. It was a row that kicked off last week, but got up a whole head of steam this one. It started with a letter written by Sabina Coyne-Higgins published in the Irish Times and then uploaded onto the President's website. A letter which called for a negotiated settlement to the war in Ukraine. Now the letter was criticised by some, saying her words drew an equivalence between the actions of Ukraine and that of Russia, a view not helped by the praise it drew from Yuri Filatov, the Russian ambassador to Ireland. For others though, this was a legitimate view of a private citizen calling for an end to bloodshed and a call to make peace. On Tuesday's Drive Time, breaking news, a statement from Sabina Higgins. Last week I'd been asked uh, about my letter to the Irish Times, which I'd written in a personal capacity by a number of people who had missed it and had not been able to access it online. I therefore put it on my dedicated section of the website, as I have done for the last number of years. Having put up my letter, I subsequently took it down when I saw it being presented as not being from myself, but from the generalpresident.ie website. I have, from its outset, strongly condemned the illegal Russian invasion of Ukraine, and I cannot be but dismayed that people would find anything unacceptable in a plea for peace and negotiations when the future of humanity is threatened by war, global warming and famine. And she signs off simply as Sabina Higgins. However, this was an issue that was getting people quite hot under the collar. Callers to Liveline on both Tuesday and Wednesday had something to say on the issue. Quite a lot, in fact. Sabina Gate, what do you think? Well, I think firstly she's a right to her opinion. I totally disagree with her opinion. Okay, but yeah. She does have a right to it, yeah. but my issue is that she should have no right to post anything on the official presidential site. I'm delighted to see that the narrative has been changed because the commentary on the war is all about who's winning, who's losing, and the dreadful, as it is, humanitarian situation. But I was very happy to hear a voice that was basically saying, stop the killing, because, I mean, if you take it, there's hundreds, I believe, of soldiers, Ukrainians, being killed every day. And it's time to start a new narrative. And I hope we continue with our voice of neutrality in the world and that we don't get drawn into militarisation and whatever in increased militarisation in Europe in the years ahead. So I was very pleased to hear her come out and speak. I just think that it was a very dangerous thing to do in the sense that it, it wouldn't have mattered, I don't think, what she had said, because I think people would have put weight behind it, for it or against it, purely because she is Michael D. Higgins' wife. And I think adding her two cents into the mix will only, because of of what she has said, will only cause people to raise their eyebrow and say, you know, what was she thinking and and why Mm. did she feel the need to say anything? I I doubt she meant badly by it. I'm sure she meant well. I'm sure she intended Mm. it to be a possibility for trying to bring to an end a war of attrition. And she's entitled to that point of view. I might agree with it, I might disagree with it. I, I do question why it went up on the Oris website, but I think to suggest that because she's married to a politician who has a particular role to play in our society, she should be in any way gagged or prevented, I think is utterly regressive and reprehensible and shouldn't, shouldn't even become part of the discourse. She was expressing her personal view. I understand that in my opinion and in lots of other opinions, that view was naive or that view was not sensible. But I think she was expressing a mm-hmm. personal view coming from within her belief about humanity. 
And unfortunately, as I said earlier, the problem with that is that you can believe as much as you like that you can talk peace to a bully, but unfortunately, sometimes the only answer is action. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with Sabrina because we are a neutral country and I think we should be calling for peace. Well, we are. Thing- Michal Martin is horse calling for peace. Every, everyone wants peace, Derek, everyone. No one wakes up in the morning and says, I want war, I want killing, I okay. want blood, I want castration, okay, I want so decapitation. Don't, don't, don't well, everyone wants peace. How do we get it? How do by we talking, get it? You don't, by, talking, by talking with who? You're not going to, has there been peace talks already in Turkey? It's a number of Between months the ago Russians now. and the yeah, Ukrainians. Yeah, yeah. there have been. So, and the Ukrainians say that the Russians broke their, broke their word within 24 hours. You know, blessed, I, Derek, I agree with you. Blessed are the peacemakers. But who will Putin listen to? Joe with callers from Liveline on Tuesday and Wednesday. But on Thursday, a call from a mother and son that brought home the reality of the war in Ukraine. On March the 8th, we knew them as Luke and Anne. I want my son not to go because it is a volatile time to go there. Okay. Like, I've, yeah. Luke, Luke, good afternoon, Luke. Hello. How's it going, Joe? Well, say hello to your mother. Emma. How you doing? Where are you going, Luke? We'll be travelling uh, to the Ukrainian border and from there we'll get across. We have plenty of first, like, you know, first aid kits, tourniquets, um, plenty of medical supplies. Well, one of my buddies is an EMT. He's been kind of running us through what to do. I don't have maybe a particular skill set, but I can't just watch. I I, re- I want to go because I don't want to watch this on, on Instagram or on the news unfold mm-hmm. and just be like, oh, well, isn't that terrible? You know, they 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 don't deserve to have their 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 country invaded like this. And I'm not going to be able to fight. I'm not. I'm not a. I'm not a soldier. I'm not. I'm not, I'm not really anything really. But I just I'm I'm fighting for them and I want to help. Have you had this conversation? What happens if we're cornered or we're caught in a small village in Ukraine and the Russian army is coming and the, the territorial defence or the Ukrainian army are handing out Kalashnikovs? Will you will you take one? Um, honestly, preferably no. I I don't. I'm not. I'm not going over there for any any hate of Russians or any 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 fear of them. I'm. I, I don't I don't blame the men on the ground for this happening. Those Russian troops are invading. They're only following orders the same as the Ukrainian soldiers. It's it's it, it's it's people pulling the strings that are the problem. And I'm not going to take up a Kalashnikov and fire at a guy who you know in another life I could be friends with. I, I'm not going over there because I want to I want to I want to fight and cause harm. I'm going over there because I'm seeing houses being destroyed and people being displaced, and I just want to help. I don't I just don't I'm sick of looking at the misery and not doing anything about it. Now, using their real names of Bailey and Pam, they spoke of what had happened after that call and Bailey's life fighting in Ukraine. Within a few days of, of being in Ukraine, we were we were under fire. So it wasn't like we weren't. It wasn't attacked by the Russian army itself. They struck it with uh, like uh, long-range missiles. Yeah, they hit which... it with cruise missiles. And how did you react? Um, I, this is going to sound actually quite silly, but when I woke up to the to the bang, um, I, re- I remember going, "Oh God!" and thinking, "This is real." And uh, honestly, the first like five seconds of my thought process was, "I really need to put my socks on." There's glass on the floor, and that was it. I like, and and then I just was like, I, I like calmly got myself dressed and got out. And it was when I got out, that's when kind of the panic started. I was like, you know, you 
you, you like hearing that and seeing it for the first time, feeling the earth shake beneath your feet. It's something. It, it is something else. But you kind of like it, it. Doesn't matter how afraid you feel. You you just keep moving. You know, there's like a part of your brain that's like mm-hmm. one with like a little voice in your head screaming, "This is insane! What are you doing?" And then the rest of everybody just kind of takes over and is like, "Hey, yo, no, we have, we've got to keep moving. We've got to keep doing things. Uh, we have to get safe. We have to get others safe." That's kind of how you react, and it's it, it's it's pretty much the same every time. And then tell us about were you were you injured at all or caught up in blasts? We were we were pretty outnumbered. Um, I was I was coming out with a radio to try and orchestrate with the lads, figure out where they were, where they were going, giving them a location to pull back to. And um, when they were hitting the hill, I got um, I got knocked up into the air by uh, mm-hmm. by a blast. Now not far, like, but I got I got caught by it and I got thrown a bit. And um, and I was I was honestly that was that was quite frightening. My my hearing was quite gone for a bit and. My vision was a little funny, but I was okay after a couple of days. I wasn't, I was luckily, very luckily, never seriously hurt. And Bailey had joined others from around the world in the International Legion of Defence of Ukraine. And while he has made it home safely, the effect of the war on him, well, you can hear it in this next clip. Uh, uh, yeah, it's not something that you, you easily forget. And it's something that... Like, there are people that you mourn for the rest of your life because mm. you, when you're in that kind of situation with people, even though you don't know them that long, there's a, there's a, there's a depth of connection that's not like anything else. So, and, like, I, I even feel kind of guilty being home. It's like, you know, my mates are still there. But uh, the, the, the effect of losing people is, yeah, it's uh, like you can only grieve after the fact. Mm. When, when, when it happens, you, have to, you, you just have to do your job. You have to be like, okay, can't save him. We can save him. We have to do this. We need to do that. We need to get out of. We need to get into cover. We need to get out of this fire. We need to find what we're doing right. Tourniquets. Where's he leading? How's he hurt? Check him over. Make mm-hmm. sure he. Make sure he's not injured in other places. He can't feel, because you know sometimes a guy will be like, oh yeah, okay. my leg. My leg is really bad, and then you could have a hole in his chest and not know. But so, you're, you're. Am I correct, uh, Bailey? You're 23. Yes. You've never been in the, the Irish Army, have you? Have ever had any training? Civil um, defence, army. No, I'd had I'd, I'd basic training in the Irish Army, but oh. I'd, I left the Irish Army on medical grounds. That medical issue was then resolved, and I, I never went back. I went into third-level education. I was actually mm-hmm. studying to be a counsellor and psychotherapist when the war kicked off, and I dropped all that and went. Yeah. And what, after all that, about his family? Here's Pam. Hi, Joe. How are uh, you? Well, how are you? Relieved. Yeah, because he's back. Blessed, yeah. Did yeah. I, at, any, at any stage, did you think you'd lost him? Yes. Well, yes, we did. We had a very scary few days. We had a, a, There was about three times where we'd no radio contact. It was just radio silence for um, over two days, and that was very stressful. He was very good at keeping in touch, so when he didn't, mm. it was very stressful. Um, and then the last time, just before he decided to come home, he he went off and I was sitting here with his dad and we were looking at each other and I was saying, like, I have his commander's number. Mm-hmm. I was given it for emergencies. If this isn't an emergency, I don't know what is. What do I do? And my, my husband and I just didn't know what to do. So I just texted his commander and I said, is Bailey alive? Yeah. And I got a text back saying, yes, he is. Please don't worry. I'll get him to ring you tomorrow. Now, we knew that it had been really serious at that point because Bailey had texted uh, before to say, I'm, I'm going out to the front. I don't know 
mm-hmm. whether I'll get to see us again or not. I have a lovely little video of him singing to me, um, saying like his goodbyes to us. And um, then he, uh, uh, yeah, so I, I fast forward uh, three and a half days, we hadn't heard anything. And um, I texted his commander and we got word that he was okay. And all that managed to do, Joe, was allow myself and his dad to actually just go to bed and be able to sleep. Yeah. And Joe asked Bailey to give an insight into his experience of the fighting in Ukraine. And while it may sound very gung-ho call of duty, the reality was, as is said, long periods of boredom punctuated by moments of sheer terror. Was there any time you said this is like a bloody movie? No, because there isn't. Honestly, there isn't really anything like the the real thing. It's it's a lot of times it's you're just sitting there and you're waiting, and then you're shelled, and then you're okay. Everybody, right? Five minutes, boom, we're gone, we're out. Hmm. And then when you get out there, you're sitting there and you're waiting for the right time for you to hit or for you to move or do uh, do kind of anything. It's like a massive game of chess. It's 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 all about hmm. position and. It's it, no movie really gets the the amount of time it takes for something to really happen, you know. And it and sometimes honestly it does it like m- movies usually skip over the the bits that kind of keep you going, which is when you're, which are when you when you're back when you've just come back from something and you're having that that debrief that de stress. Um, I wouldn't really say there's a movie out there that can kind of quite. Capture it. I'm sure, yeah, like Band of Brothers, I know I remember watching that as a kid and there's, yeah, yeah. there's a lot of camaraderie. You see the guys singing in the trenches. That's absolutely a thing. Like we used to, well, well like most of my squad was um, like from all different parts of the world. So like the Canadians, Americans, we'd uh, English and Scottish guys. And one of the things we started doing actually was we all learned Wild Rover. And we used to sing that while we were marching or like working or something like that. And it's so, yeah, there's like little bits like that where you're kind of like, ah, this is a movie scene. But not, not really. No. Yeah. Okay. Okay. But now that he is back, how has the relationship between Pam and her son changed? Your original position, um, when you said, Bailey, uh, you don't visit war, war visits you, please don't go. Have you changed yourself? Um, Difficult question. It is a difficult question to ask. And yes, it it changed our relationship. It really sort of forced home the point that he's a grown man who can do what he wants. Um, so I had to mature as a mother. But it also, it did change my view of, the you know, people who are willing to do that, the kind of courage it takes to go. Um, at first, one of the things I regret is, like, I was I was cross with him. I was angry mm, that he was mm. doing this. I believed on some level it was an immature act and it was, you know, he was going to get there and realise the re- reality of war and flee. Um, and he didn't. He stayed yeah. the distance, and he, and there was one photograph he sent of us. He went, he was given relief. He went off to Kharkiv for the day, and he come back and was told he'd be off for the night, but he wasn't. He was being sent back out, and he sent us a photograph of him completely decked out in his um, front lines gear, and he just looked so sad. And I, I just thought. Um, yeah, that that was devastating to see that. And um, I knew by that photograph that he was ready to come home. And mm. it was the next day he told me he was. And I can tell you, Joe, by God, did I mobilise. I was on to the Ukrainian embassy. I was on to the Irish embassy. Okay. I was, you know, I 
got things in motion. I got flights booked. I it was, but for those curfews, trying to get them out of Ukraine was a nightmare because of the curfews. So it was like, uh, um, we were joking, saying it was like the Lord of the Rings trying to get them out of there, get them okay. away from Mordor, you know. So then, this question. And Bailey, Bailey, why did you come home? Um, I came home because, uh, yeah, to be honest, what I was seeing was kind of weighing heavy on me. Um, I made I made a call in the spur of the moment, and we we did get out Ukrainian wounded, but I I felt like I'd let somebody down. It didn't sit right with me, and the guys were like, "No, it's totally like you totally did the right thing, absolutely." But um, okay. I, I another thing is I'd lost my, my I had a pennant of Saint Michael, and the, the last one I was out, at, I lost my pennant. The, page, the patron got, saint of soldiers. Yeah, honestly, I just got, I just got mad superstitious and I was just weary. But as the programme drew to a close, Joe had out texts from listeners who had a serious problem with Bailey's decision and the way he was talking about his experience. All I hear is a glorification of war. One man on a crusade, if he had died on the first day, how does that help Ukraine? Uh, I have a 23-year-old and I don't, I don't want him propagandised into signing up. He's glorifying death and destruction. That's what you're talking about. Listening to your show with someone who works with young, impressionable people. I'm appalled at the interview with the, the guy who went to Ukraine. It's glorifying this idea that you can just pop over to Ukraine for a bit and I come home and it'll be grand. Well, for a response and the last word on this, here's Bailey. The Ukrainians aren't taking just anybody. And they they tried to offer me roles that weren't combat. Um, I'm not encouraging anybody to go. I've said, if you don't absolutely know what you're doing, you shouldn't be over there. If you think I'm glorifying or not, this war is still going on and these people need help. Yeah. And just because it's far away and you can you can turn off your phone and it's out of your mind doesn't mean it's not happening, doesn't mean that suffering's not there. So, no, I, 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 I'm sorry, but I reject that premise. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not glorifying this. I'm just given the reality of what, of, of, of what my reality was. And if I'm talking about nicer moments, like the, me and the lads singing and stuff like that, mm. it's hard over there. And we, we do those things to, we do those things to cope. We do those things to bond and get together. And, it's, and that's, that's, the, that's the reality on the ground. That's, that's how guys get through that kind of stuff. It is absolutely horrible. And I'm, I'm just trying to share a little bit of our story. I'm not glorifying yeah. anybody. Yeah. And it, uh, to be honest, right, I'll cut this off at the pass. If you're, if you're a young man, if you're 18 or 19, you're fresh out of school, or you've never been in the army, you've never done anything like this, do not go to Ukraine to fight as a soldier. They do not need people who do not know what they're doing. If you want to help, volunteer here. But no, I, no I'm not glorifying more here. From Liveline on Thursday. Back in a bit. Welcome back. We are in August. And you know what that means? We are in silly season. The infamous season when the news is in such low supply that um, the silly is elevated along the side of the series. And there has been years maybe since we had a proper silly season, especially during the hairy years of COVID and Brexit, which just seemed to just whine on in through August. And, and when you think of it, August 2020, we had the Oroctus Golf uh, Society, Golf Gate. August last year, we had the Catherine Zappone controversy. So huge political rows until August 2022. And it's really quiet, mercifully quiet. We all needed the rest from all those stories that make your head gurn. So embrace the August. The summer is old now. It's grey haired, it's wearing glasses, and it's talking about way, way back when it was young. But it's still here and it's still lovely wherever you can find it. Oliver, it is not over yet. But with what is left of this week's playback, let us embrace the silly pestilence plague, 
be gone. Political skullduggery and machinations banished. But speaking of grey hair and way, way back when we were young, take it away, Philip. John Travolta and the woman who's... Just the mere mention of her name still turns my seven-year-old knees to jelly. <laughs> I was sure where you were going with that one. John, oh, <laughs> I've always dear, hated dear, her. I was like, oh no, you, it's good, it's really? good. <laughs> no, no, I still have a massive crush on Olivia Newton-John. And she's here tonight, no. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't be able to contain myself. <sighs> TMI, Philip, TMI. And thank you, Conor Behan, for pouring cold water on that one. And on Bank Holiday Monday, from Sure It Was Better, this golden voice. Winstanleys have been manufacturing boots and shoes of the highest quality for 120 years. Winstanley make boots and shoes to suit all purposes and occasions. So whether you want the rugged masculine shoe to cope with the wear and tear of your work or play, Winstanley can fit your foot and pocket. Or if you want the wither type for your social activities or special occasions, then the Winstanley all-leather shoe range can also fill the bill. For the finest shoes in the world are made in Ireland, and the finest shoes in Ireland are made by Win Stanley. The finest shoes. I'd say there's a few people now who are still rocking the old Win Stanleys. Win Stanleys. They've been going for that long. At work and play. Mm. They're rugged, rugged quality. Masculine Win Stanleys. Did they make shoes for women? (laughs) Do we know? I have no idea. Oh, unlikely. Sure, all you'd need for the kitchen is slippers. Meanwhile, Vincent Woods took a spin-out for the county measure and landed in Westmeath, where he met these two sisters. Prepare yourself for some serious... Oh, so cute. Hi, I'm Coco and I'm 10 years old and we're in Westmeath. Hi, I'm Shiko and I'm 12 years old and we're in County Westmeath in Athlone. There is a castle in Athlone, it's called the Athlone Castle and you get to go there and then there's a park, Kusin, where there's little ducks and everything, you get to feel the ducks. And then I heard they're making a new bridge over um, this Shannon so we can go like walk or ride your bicycle over there, so that's also really nice there. Coco and Shiko and Buru are also sisters. They like to remember Kenya, where their grandparents live and where they learned a little Swahili. Do I say them now? Okay, so Jambo is hello, and then Habari Gani is how are you, and then Pako is cat, and then Moa is dog, and then Pole is sorry. Do you like going to Kenya? Do you like going to visit your grandparents? I mean, do, does that feel like another home for you? Yes, it does actually, because it's like... How to explain? It is very warm to us. We there's a little farm beside our house, so we get to like sli- um stay with the animals and we help with our grandparents with cleaning and everything. So it's pretty nice. They even say Kenya is really cold sometimes, even though it's burning hot. So imagine them coming to Ireland. That would be so funny. <laughs> <laughs> They're so hardworking, so hardworking. I think they um my mom got it off from them. My mom's very hardworking, but um yeah, my grandparents. What else? They're very you? cute. <laughs> <Very cute. laughs> 
and staying in Westmead, down in Mullingar for the FLA, Darcy, almost upstaged by this young man whose voice you might know. Enjoy the show. The lovely eight-year-old Jermoth. And Ray traced his meteoric rise to stardom. And after the two sisters, we may have a county cute-off going on. You broke your arm? Yeah. How'd you do it? I was jumping on a trampoline at my cousin's birthday party. That'll do it. During COVID, we were saying we needed somebody to start the show, right? And your mum, Fiona, sent in a recording of you. Yeah. And you've been listening to Joe Duffy. Yeah. And you borrowed one of his catchphrases. Yeah. Wash your hands. Yeah, wash your hands. Welcome to the Radar Show. Wash your hands, yeah. And then last year when COVID relaxed a little bit, we got you to do something else and you said... Have a right somewhere. And now every time when people tune in, just after three o'clock to Radio 1, they hear your voice and you say... Enjoy the show. Yeah, we've heard his greatest hits, but this is his current hit. It's number one of the jingle chart. Are you nervous? Uh, not really. I'm going to count to three. One, two, three. Cute as a button. It's got to be a draw. But show underway, Ray spoke to Ruth Illingworth, former mayor of Mullingar, as well as being a lecturer, historian and tour guide. And she was only dripping with the knowledge when it came to the town and the county. Mullingar, I was saying on Mullingar, what does yep. that mean? It means the left-handed mill. Yes. And it comes from a story about a saint called Coleman, whose life contains the first mention of Mullingar. And he, a mill wheel which turned left-hand-wise to grind corn for him, same time as going the other way, grinding corn for the King Stuart. So we're the only town in Ireland named after a miracle. Nice. Uh, a left-handed mill. Left-handed mill. We also have... Um, a place because the longest lease in history. Right, listen to this, ladies and gentlemen. The longest lease. How long is it? It's uh, 10 million years. Right. Okay. 1868 <laughs> was signed between the town's landlord, Lord Greville, whose coat of arms is over the market house, and it was for a sewerage pipe, uh, very mundane, between the army barracks here and a sewerage tank in a field. And he gave uh, him a right of way. He right gave him a right of way, but the lease was for 10 million years. No idea why it's so long, yeah. but it is, I think, the longest lease And where are we, where are we at? No, don't answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're 100 and... We've uh, 154 <laughs> years gone yeah. of that lease come yeah. December. Oh, that is interesting. And all going swimmingly until this. I think it was Ryan Tupperty who said, when you think of Mullingar, you think of music. <laughs> right. And this town has decades, centuries did, right. of music. Right. <gasps> Awkward. Luckily, the next day, the Darcy was moving on. What I love about Galway is the way it rolls off the tongue. Two syllables, starts fresh, go real hard, and then way into the ocean breeze, down by the docks. You've got to love the tourists. On Bank Holiday Monday, the RTE Concert Orchestra and poet Paul Muldoon celebrated another Paul, this time the McCartney. And they were joined by Lisa Lamb, who had a particular grow for this song, written in 1968. Blackbird has, again, his songwriting allows you to see the layers with, within it. You see nature, you see the blackbird. And when you read the context around the song, you, you start to see him speaking about you know, this song was written very closely around the time of the assassination of Martin Luther King. So the sunken eyes, the bird with the broken wing, 
reminds me again of, of, of the Irish context and of Kathleen Maud, who wrote beautiful traditional singer and, and poet who wrote Gavin about, about a, an animal in a cage. So that sort of idea of the yearning for freedom. And I think after the couple of years that we've had, what a beautiful, beautiful song to sing today. And it, it is a song about social justice. Absolutely. I think, you know, I think when I was growing up listening to these songs, all I could see was was on Londov, the Blackbird, you know, and looking at the beautiful book that's come out recently um, on, on the lyrics that you that you were part of, Paul. I think, you know, what I love about what he says in that book is that recordings don't change, but your perspective on the songs changes. There's so many layers to it, and I think that's that's why people can connect lyrically to it, but melodically it's the great beauty of it. So it's the lightness with the shade, and I think that's why I love these songs so much. Blackbird singing in the dead of night Take these broken wings and learn to fly This moment to rise Blackbird singing in the dead of night Take these sunken eyes and learn to sing All your life You were only waiting for this moment to be free Blackbird Beautiful indeed from the Bank Holiday Special with the orchestra celebrating Paul McCartney. Now if you do go down to the woods, stay away from the mushies. Here's Philip with Ain and Ilana, Never a Woman to Sugarcoat a Good Seizure, followed by Death. A very wise person once say in relation to knowing what mushrooms to eat and what mushrooms to stay away from that the only way to do this is... Just go and learn it from an expert. I I assume you're in that camp as well, are you? Well, yes, indeed. You can eat every mushroom once, but you know (laughs) something you might want to. So you do. I mean, you can you can eat berries and you can eat nuts and you get as if they're not good, you get a pain in your tummy. But if you eat a mushroom that isn't right, it attacks your liver and you mightn't, in fact, die for a week. So, like, I mean, mushrooms, you can really kill yourself with mushrooms. So if you don't know what you're doing, if you're not absolutely sure, do not do it. It might look like the mushroom you get in the shop, but it might have different gills underneath. It might be a different one, have a ring around the bottom. It might belong to a very deadly poisonous group that resemble a a, a tame group and you would be 
you know, eating this and killing yourself. And there's no point in sending me a photograph or describing it over the phone and saying it's this and it's that and it's the other. The only way that you can identify it is to have the thing in your hand. So go on these fungal forays, these fungal walks. They're coming up all the time now in August and September because this is when the fruiting bodies of all these mycelium are put up. The fruiting bodies are there and some of them are the most delicious things to eat and some of them can kill you stone dead. And you have to go out and learn them for yourself. And even if you only learn one or two, then you learn something new because there's far more taste of the wild mushrooms than there ever is of the ones that you get in the shops. Mind you, the ones you get in the shops won't kill you. Always a help. And staying in the realm of the vegetable, Mike Hanrahan, Stockton's wing, what he wouldn't have given for a nice shiitake. Ooh la la. Was it the experience of trying to be a vegetarian in Ireland in the 70s and 80s that drove you to learn how to cook properly? Absolutely. The trauma of it. I mean, <laughs> you couldn't get a pepper in Ennis, you know. I mean, you, you, you couldn't get a pepper in Ennis. You, you might have to get the bus up to, to, to Ennis Diamond where all the hippies were and, 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 and rummage through and get a pepper off them. But it was it was difficult. Uh, it was difficult to, to, to live as a vegetarian that time. But I, it, it forced me to, to learn how to cook. And, I, and I've got this book from a friend of mine. Hang on a second. And particularly when you're on the road and, and you were only able to eat late at night. I mean, what were you doing? Um, you know, vegetarians were really poorly <laughs> treated and served. Normally, the, the vegetarian meal was always the same. It was probably around maybe ghost cheese, but it was uh, sitting on top of a, a, a platter of, kind of, as I used to call it, the home for the bewildered leaves and salad <laughs> settings. That the chef, I could always imagine the chef inside in the kitchen, oh, there's another vegetarian. So they run around and gather things. And, and as I said to some people, it could be those little cucumber pieces that would adorn a salmon. They might wash them off and throw them on because the plate... Wasn't, it was really, it wasn't very pretty. So you had to eat at home. And then I'd cook stuff at home and bring it on the road with me. Uh-huh. And like things like, ro- like roast loaves, and they're all easy to cook at home. But I became a, a good, uh, decent enough at the vegetarian food. But ultimately, you, you had to give it up. I had to, I was really tired of getting <laughs> horrible food. And, and you, you were always last to be served because this. You'd shock the, the, the kitchen as a vegetarian. They'd only have their, their recipes ready. And so you'd be last to be served, even though it was the easiest thing to put together. And eventually I just gave in and I, I, I took ages to get a dinner one time. And the lads were finished laughing at me with their steaks. And I, I said, OK, white flag. And from cooking to sport, or rather, no sport really. No, the Enrights aren't team players. I well, maybe they are in their professional lives, but I don't remember anyone wielding a hockey stick or a kamoki or... No, no footballs really were involved in the rearing of those children. Booker Prize winning writer Anne Enright. And given that she's on second captains, that does not bode well for their scoreboard. But her father was a Clare man, so she did get dragged to matches. A great day out. Ruined. I went to a Clare match in Thurlis when I was 14. After the schlep. And the strangeness of watching people running around in a way I didn't understand. And then they lost. And then we went home. And something about that didn't make sense to me as an outing. (laughs) (laughs) What, that it was just deeply unsatisfactory? Yeah, well, I was still essentially a child. And you'd think, yeah, yeah, we're going, yeah, it's going to be great. And then it wasn't great. Nobody could explain to me why that was an okay thing. A superb point. She talked, though, about working in RTE television as a producer-director. 
and burnout, severe burnout. Yeah, 80 hour weeks. I suppose it's like a junior doctor these days. We're working 12 days in a row, that kind of thing. Uh, heavy schedules, on air three times a week, live. I was either on or gone, you know? Like I could do it all. And then I, you know, the, the switch would flick and I could do absolutely nothing. So I think the switch flicked more or less permanently one day in spring in 1991. Actually, I went to a GP for something else and, and of all the doctors I'd been to, he was the one who asked the right questions. And he said, do you ever think about killing yourself? And I said, yes, I do. And nobody had asked me that question before. And now they're all kind of trained to do it. So he kind of packed me off. Uh, to some kind of place um, and then slowly sticking myself back together again coming out into the world. Today although sport continues to leave her cold swimming in the sea is her thing. It's incredibly um, primal things like the horizon line and the flatness of the water there's a thing that, and the sky, I mean, rolling around, seeing the sky above you. There's a thing that happens to me about, and I wait for it before I get out, actually. It's like a little thread, a tiny little thread in my brain just goes ping. It just snaps. Whatever tension or whatever you're holding or whatever it is just gives way. And it's like mm. it does, you can almost hear, I can almost hear the click. It's like, here I am. It's very close to perfect. I mean, it really, really makes me happy. And <laughs> I mean, it's important that it's the sea. I don't mind the cold. Um, it is, uh, but of course, then I don't go because it's too cold. But yeah, I, I don't even think it's endorphins because I think the endorphins, you know, come from more strenuous cardio. There's just something that happens that just, it, it, your, my head just opens. But she did have this very interesting insight into the whole dry rope discussion. I see these gangs of women and they are having the best time ever. I mean, they're just have, it's like a hen party where they drink. It's just fantastic. <laughs> um, and I was a bit taken, I mean, I was a bit sort of, I had my doubts then when everyone was giving out about the dry robes. Because, you know, they say, oh, dry robes and they're so expensive. And they are expensive. And... But it seemed to me that there might be an undercurrent there of what are these women doing in their, you know, because it's women who wear the dry robes. And, uh, and is there a kind of thing against some, not always middle class women, but is it because of the price, middle class women, that they shouldn't be out enjoying themselves? Like there are guys going past on the cycling who've paid seven, eight, nine grand for their bikes. Mm. And nobody's given out about the cyclists because it's not, and I think it may, be partly because of the way the dry rope has been gendered. So, I mean, you can't give out about people enjoying themselves in the sea. It's actually a crime to give out about people enjoying themselves in the sea. Mm. Unless, of course, they keep telling you about it. Nevertheless, what was her final score on the second captain's scoreboard? Is field swimming a sport? No, but it's still pretty cool. So taking it all into account, I'll give you 72 points and our heartfelt thanks, Anne Enright, this has been your sporting. Oh, and thank you so much. Thanks, thank you. Lads. Round of applause, please, for Anne Enright. Thank you. Hello to all my friends in Dublin, in all of Ireland. It's a me, Super Mario. Woohoo! You number one. Yahoo! <sighs> 
that is Charles Martinet, the voice of Mario, the soundtrack to many a gamer's formative years. And he joined Oliver and despite the early hour, he was dialed up to 11. Not a man to mute the voices. I do Luigi too. Luigi never one. Ho ho. And Wario, have a rotten day. Yahoo. Oh wait, I forgot. Mommy said say something nice. There. And well, Luigi, everybody cheap at me. And we thought Oliver was good with the voices. But turns out Charles Martinez was a lovely man who took great pleasure in his job and the fun that it brought. You know, I'm the luckiest guy in the world. I, I get to do what I love to do in life. Uh, and, and people say, oh, you're the voice of my childhood. So I, I just wish that for everybody. Find your joy, your passion, your happiness, and, and you'll bring it to others, I think. And for many now, he was a jobbing actor for 10 years, which, as he fully admits, involved a lot of sitting on the beach. Until a friend paged him. Yes, kids, it was the paging era. With this proposal... You gotta go crash this audition. It's for a job in Vegas. And I said, There is no way I could ever crash an audition. I am a professional actor. <laughs> Where should I go? And I, I left the beach. I went to this audition, caught the guy as he was he's walking out, and I'm walking in, and I saw the camera and I said, Can I please read for this? And he's oh, all right, we'll set the camera up. You're an Italian plumber from Brooklyn named Mario for a company called Nintendo. So I'm like, oh, okay. He says, so make up a voice, make up a video game. So I thought, you know, hey, get out of my face. I'm wicked here, you know. Or, hey, what do you want? What do you say? Get away from me. And I thought, well, I don't want to do that all day because what if there are kids? But I had played Gremio in Taming of the Shrew a few years earlier. He was a nice Italian guy, talking like this. And I thought, well, do that and make him younger. I, but I don't know anything about uh, video games except waka 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 waka. I so, didn't expect Super Mario would have come fr- out of Taming of the Shrew. No, he did though. He really, <laughs> he did. truly did. Yeah, we did a 1947 version in Italy where Petruchio's a GI going back to find a wife, and I was the the dad. <laughs> what a backstory! <laughs> Who knew? But in the middle of all the voices and all the anecdotes, he told a really kind story about how he sees humor. When I was in my first acting class, there was a guy with a stutter. And I said, you know, have you always had this stutter? And he said, no, on my 21st birthday, we went to Las Vegas to see a comedian. We're sitting there having dinner. We had dinner, lovely party. All of a sudden, the lights came up. And, his, and the comedian said, hey, there's, a, there's somebody whose 21st birthday it is. Stand up, kid. And I, he said, I stood up. And he goes, oh, look at that fat, ugly kid. Look at the pimply face on that guy. And he, he kept insulting me. You know, he says, oh, my, I bet your mother can't stand having you sit back down. And every time he made a joke, I got more and more nervous and sweating and people laughed more. And I woke up with a stutter and I've had it ever since. And that, you know, for me, all of life has marks. And that was one where I bet nothing I ever do in my profession will be aimed at somebody else. I will never hurt someone with comedy. But back to the acting and Super Mario. What's my motivation, darling? Fetch. As a professional actor, I'm a big believer in doing the script one time exactly as they write it. And then from there, whoopee! <laughs> you know, get a little larger, a little larger, a little larger, a little farther out there and farther out there until they say, stop talking, cut! <laughs> do, you get a, do you get a lot of that in your life? I do, <laughs> I do. You know, I, you know I, I, to me, acting is, you're a dog chasing a ball on the beach. You, yeah. you know, you, you do, you know, when, when someone says sit, heel, you do that, do those sort of things. And then you get to your time and that's, that's when you're in session. That's when you're at audition. It's not, you know, it's not the 
paradigm of competition or I want to make sure I do the right thing. Wow. The dog just gets the ball and brings it back and gets the ball. Sure, though, there's little between you and Daniel Day-Lewis. You're in, in, into such method, you're picturing yourself as the as the dog. <laughs> because because <laughs> such is the energy. I wouldn't quite to his level of professionalism <laughs> and know. acting, but it is that Longer thing, career, you know? bizarrely. You know, you, you just, you there's, let go. There's joy to this world, isn't there? Yeah, in, there in is. Mario and Nintendo. And you can create through joy and you can create through pain. But I, I'm a big one for, for, you know, taking the light side. <laughs> well, that is it for this week's playback. Let's make a pizza pie together. You go get some sausage. Stop, Stop it. Thank you for listening. Talk to you next week. And if I catch you the pizza, you got to eat the pizza. See you next time. Wahoo!